Tonight's reading is from Acts chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he'd said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who's been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is God's word. Evening, everybody. If we've not met, my name's Phil. I'm the associate minister here, and it's uh, lovely to have you with us. So let's pray. Father God, some of us, no doubt, are very new to, to these things and are intrigued, sceptical, interested. We pray that you would give us all, wherever we stand, minds that are sharp to understand what your Bible says, hearts that... Uh, that can recognize truth. And we pray that you would help us to, to find the truth about you, that we might find the fulfillment that is only found in a relationship with the living God. We ask this for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So as I said, we're about to start a new series working through the book of Acts together. We're spending the next wee while doing so. Uh, Acts was written by uh, Luke, who uh, wrote Luke's Gospel. And he was Paul's traveling companion for some of his journeys. We'll explain all those things as we go through. He was a medical doctor. And it records really the growth of Christianity from this uh, tiny handful of Jewish followers of Jesus to the movement that explodes through the Roman Empire with all its diverse people groups and transforms the known world. But why are we studying it? Why have we uh, chosen the book of Acts and why on earth should you give me your attention for the next few minutes? Well, actually, the reasons that Luke wrote back then, when you read through the book of Acts and look at why did Luke bother to write this stuff, the reasons that he wrote for his original audience, I think are still supremely relevant to you and me today. And as you work through, there really are three, three reasons that Luke charts the, the growth of the early Christian movement. There are three ways that he organizes his material. He wants to show us that the message of the risen Jesus Christ is one, credible, two, healthy for society, and three, spreads rather messily. Let me explain why those mean you should, uh, you should listen. 
Firstly, credible. Luke began his first volume, which is called Luke, by saying in the, in the very first couple of verses that he was writing a carefully researched historical account so his reader might, quote, know the certainty of the things you've been taught. And much of the book of Acts is speeches. Speeches devoted to defending and explaining the Christian faith, demonstrating to Jewish audiences that Jesus really is the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures and to pagan or philosophical Greek audiences. Look, Jesus' death and resurrection, well, they are, they're reasonable to believe in. There's good evidence. They are true and reliable. And so if you're still weighing up in your mind what you think about Christianity, or if you'd perhaps call yourself a convinced Christian, but actually at the moment you're really wrestling with intellectual doubts, or if you find yourself as a Christian not always doing knowing how to explain the basic gospel message of Jesus to, to your friends and colleagues and course mates, then Acts is a hugely relevant book for you because the speeches are designed to do exactly that, to say to people, to show people that the message of Jesus is credible. But it's not just credible, it also shows that it's healthy for society. Uh, another very notable feature as you read through it is the number of times that Luke records interactions with magistrates or, or records court trials where Paul usually is on trial and told, uh, people are saying he's a very bad man, he should be put in prison, beaten up, killed, whatever, because the message that he's telling you, this message of this weird Jesus man, it is bad news. It causes trouble, it should be illegal, and it needs to be stamped out. And actually, that's a very important thing for us to understand today. I think in the West, it used to be that to be a Christian, you were considered, well, kind of weird in a harmless Ned Flanders in the Simpsons kind of a way. But the, it feels like the dial has shifted rather on that in recent years. And these days, I think that in our broader culture, there's more of a sense that Christianity is not just a little bit odd, but actually it's unhealthy. And in fact, to, to live by, the, by what the Bible teaches, to follow Jesus, is, is actually harmful for society. In a recent survey of young people in Britain, over 60% of young people agreed with the statement, religion is bad for society. And Acts will remind us, well, that Christianity's always faced this accusation. But perhaps more importantly, Acts will remind us that the gospel is profoundly healthy for society. Actually, the, the Jesus movement began a revolution that, to quote just two things, led the way in the transformation of women's rights and championed the needs of the poor and the vulnerable. And then thirdly, it spreads rather messily. This is probably the easiest one to miss, but in some senses, I think this is the most important one for a church like ours. In Acts 1.8, Jesus tells us what's going to happen. If you look down, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Acts records that that is precisely what does happen. The book ends, um, well, not quite with Australia, but with the gospel having reached Rome, which is the gateway to the, to the rest of the known world. But but I'm sure most of you will be aware that it does so under enormous external pressure. 
there is brutal persecution at times from the authorities. And we'll read it as we go through Acts. Uh, the book ends with the key figure, really, in the spread of, the, of early Christianity, the key human figure, the Apostle Paul, still languishing in prison, having been there for at least three, four, maybe even five years with no hope of release. The gospel spreads, as we read, in spite of the Christians having no social capital whatsoever, in spite of them being viewed with great suspicion and hostility by most of the surrounding culture, and in spite of them suffering at times really brutal persecution. Now, I guess that may not be a surprise to us. We know the church faced external pressures from from bits of history. But we may be less aware that it faced enormous internal pressure. I think that if we know anything about early Christianity, we have a a kind of idealized view of the early church, these sinless, super-spiritual Christians living perfectly in tune with the will of God. But then you read Acts. And yes, there is a lot that's going to challenge us about the example of the early Christians. But we'll also see they were just like you and me, ordinary, fallible, sinful people wrestling with doubts, trying to follow Jesus. We'll see the early church, within a year or two of its existence, is hit by financial scandals, divided by heretical teaching, and shamed by racial discrimination. The key leaders are so unimpressive looking that the churches are always being tempted to depart from Jesus by really impressive, dynamic, false teachers. And in fact, in the second half of Acts, the two most important leaders in the Christian movement have such a massive blow up with each other that they refuse to work with each other and go their separate ways. And yet in the midst of all the mess and the struggle, God is at work and he does exactly what he promised he would. And the kingdom of Jesus spreads right around the Roman world. And as we look out in our day, speaking to the Christians, as you look out and see a, well, at times dismissive, hostile culture, as we see the wider church mired in in divisions and scandals, and as we look at our own church and and our own lives and see, well, pretty bog standard ordinary, if we're honest. Well, we can look at that and find ourselves just doubting. How on earth is God going to be at work here, now? in us. But I'm praying Acts will teach us to look at things differently, to see that that's always been the way God works through mess. God always uses fallible leaders. God always uses ordinary people. And God, therefore, can be trusted to be at work today in our church and our city. So Acts will give us hope. Now, the focus of this first section, I wanted to spend a little bit of time on the introduction, but the focus of this first section in Acts is really about Jesus' ascension to heaven. You'll notice in the, in the reading that three times we're, we're told Jesus is taken up. He's been taken up. He's been taken up. And Luke wants us here to be confident as followers of Jesus because Jesus has ascended into heaven and his spirit has descended to earth to empower us. That's what we'll see. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and his spirit has descended to earth to empower his people. Let's work through it. Uh, Jesus is resurrected and alive today, verses 1 to 5. Verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote all about, all about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he'd chosen. 
Now, instinctively, I think most of us have a tag team wrestling view of the Trinity. You may not have been aware that you had any view of the Trinity, but if you have one, it's probably the tag team wrestling view, which is that we think kind of the Old Testament, that's God the Father. He does his stuff and then he taps out. And in the gospel, Jesus jumps into the ring and he does his stuff. And then at the end of the gospels, the beginning of Acts, he taps out and the Holy Spirit jumps in and he does his stuff. And it's kind of Father, Son, then Spirit. But right from the first verse, we see that just isn't right. If Luke's gospel, verse one, was all that Jesus began to do and to teach, it's pretty clear that Luke is saying, and this is now going to tell you all that he continued to do and to teach. Only now he acts by the Holy Spirit through his people. And so in in Acts 16, 7, it's no surprise to find the Holy Spirit referred to as the Spirit of Jesus. But as we go through Acts, it is Jesus directing the action. It's the message of Jesus the apostles proclaim. And it is Jesus in whom you and I to put our faith as we read this book. Verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, the thing I find really surprising in these verses is that Jesus' disciples clearly took a lot of convincing before they would believe he'd risen from the dead. Do you notice that? He had to convince them again and again, presenting them with convincing proofs over 40 days. Now, they'd seen people like Lazarus raised back to life by Jesus. We read about it in John 11 in small groups. But this was different. Lazarus was raised back to his old mortal body, and in a few years' time, he died again. But Jesus was resurrected. His body was a bit different. He could eat, and they could touch him. But on the other hand, he appears to be able to just walk through walls. It was recognizably him, and, and, and yet he's somehow different. And the apostles, they, they struggled to get their heads around it all. At which point, our assumptions come off second best in a crash with reality. You see, I think we assume that pre-scientific people like this, they kind of just, you know, miracles, resurrection, they just believed any of it. Because that's what pre-scientific, simple people like them did, unlike us sophisticated moderns. But... Uh, Tom Wright has demonstrated in his massive tome, The Resurrection of the Son of God, that this just couldn't be further from the truth. First century Greco-Roman people, they just didn't want a resurrection. They viewed the body as the prison of the spirit and death as the time when the soul was set free. For first century Jewish people, the idea of someone rising to eternal life during history before the end of time, it was just unthinkable. Now, yes, they were more comfortable with the idea of the supernatural than most modern secular Londoners, but they were just as sceptical about the idea of resurrection as anybody you and I will meet. But over the course of 40 days, Jesus gave this initially sceptical group of men and women convincing proofs that he had risen to life. And the evidence is there, and it's there for you and me, if we're willing to look into it. So what? Well, so what? At heart, Christianity is not 
a way of life, a spiritual path, a set of ethical teachings. It's not even the way to get forgiveness and eternal life. Christianity, at its heart, is a real and personal encounter with the risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. It is knowing him. It is a relationship with him. And all those other things, forgiveness and life and meaning and hope, they are found in knowing him. And when I encourage somebody to become a Christian, when you encourage somebody else to become a Christian, I'm inviting you to meet the real resurrected Jesus Christ, nothing less. Jesus resurrected and alive today, so meet him. Secondly, verses 6 to 8, Jesus is growing his kingdom by his spirit. Verse 6. Then they gathered round him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, they're not wrong to ask about this, the restoration of Israel. The Old Testament does talk about Israel being restored when God sends his spirit. But it seems that they've got quite a sort of a small political restoration, an end to Roman rule in their heads. And Jesus warns them, firstly, look, stop worrying about timings. And secondly, oh, I've got something much, much bigger planned. Verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father's set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Their concern is to see a descendant of David sit on a physical throne in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, oh, no. When the Old Testament promised the restoration of Israel, it talked about the servant of God being a light to the nations. Talked about the message of salvation going to the ends of the earth. The resurrection of Jesus means God's salvation and rule will spread through the whole world. You can think of it uh, this way. Imagine parents uh, say to a child, soon we're going to go on a bit of a long journey and then you can have a paddle in the sea child thinks, great, long, boring car journey, and then I get to the British seaside, out on the pebbly beach, and then uh, keep my feet in the freezing water as long as I can, hoping I don't contract some hideous disease from the raw sewage floating around our coast at the moment as we hear. But, you know, still, it's, it's, it's fun. And then one day, the parents take the child, but not in a car, but to the airport, and they go on a much longer journey on an aeroplane, and then they got on a boat, and they arrive at this beautiful tropical island on the top of the beach, shaded by palm fronds and then that sugar sand going down into crystal clear seas. And there's a spectacular looking villa visible just through the foliage in the hilltop. And they say, this is ours. We've been given this tropical island. You're now going to live here. Let's go and explore. Let's go and have a look at the house. No, 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 no. You said when we went on a long journey, I could paddle in the sea. I need to know when do I paddle in the sea? Seriously, seriously, forget paddling in the sea. You're going to spend the rest of your life swimming and kite surfing and enjoying warm tropical waters. Stop asking whether it's going to be at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock. The rest of your life, you've got this whole island. And that's what Jesus is saying to them. Oh, look, don't worry about, is Israel going to be restored? I'm telling you, the whole world's going to be restored. 
I'm telling you the resurrection of Jesus Christ means the restoration of the cosmos. It means that the countdown timer has begun for the end of injustice and oppression and sadness and sorrow and even death. All those things have now got a shelf life. And the countdown timer has begun for the new creation when God will make a paradise that all his people will live in forever. You need to see what God is doing in the resurrection of Jesus is far bigger than you have ever imagined. That's what Jesus wants his apostles to see. And the promise is that the kingdom will spread out in stages, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And that's what we'll see. Those are the stages we'll see in Acts. But do you see how the kingdom spreads? You will be my witnesses. The kingdom of Alexander the Great spread as he drew his sword and sat on Bucephalus' horse and led his armies in war. The kingdom of Muhammad spread the same way. The British Empire spread the same way, the edge of a sword or a musket. But not the kingdom of Jesus. His kingdom spreads as the apostles and then the, the other followers of Jesus bear witness as they speak in the power of the Spirit about Jesus. As they tell others uh, what Jesus said and did and why it matters, how his life reveals the truth about God, how in his death every shred of guilt and shame that you might feel has been wiped away, how in his resurrection there is hope even beyond the grave. It is witness, not warfare, that will spread the kingdom of Jesus. And to be honest, that's why there's so many speeches and acts. If you've ever read through it, you do, on the first reading, think, oh, seriously, another speech. I mean, come on. Can't we have, you know, dramatic healing or, a, you know, an escape down a city wall or, or another shipwreck? Apparently there are a few of those we weren't even told about. Can't we have a bit more action? But the thing is, speeches are action. Because that's how the gospel spreads and the church grows. The Holy Spirit could work any way he likes. He is God after all. But he has chosen to work through witness. He has chosen that that is the way that the kingdom of Jesus will spread. Through the words that his people speak. So what? So speak with confidence. Now we've got to be careful. In Acts, at various times, we'll see there are things that are spoken to a specific group of people at a specific time. We'll think about that more in two weeks. But the primary application here is to the apostles. They're the 12 that are being spoken to. Jesus appoints them as his authoritative witnesses. And so he's saying, look, if you want to know the truth about Jesus, you need to go to the, to the apostles. And we now find what they say recorded in the Bible. We'll think more about that next week. But as we'll see in Acts 2, the Spirit is poured out on all Christians to speak about Jesus. And so secondarily, it's right for you and for me to reflect on the fact that if you follow Jesus today, the Holy Spirit is in you just as much as the Holy Spirit was in the apostles. And you and I are called to bear witness to Jesus and the kingdom of Jesus spreads as people like you and me speak about Jesus. We don't need to rely on our rhetorical gifts or intellectual abilities or force of personality because we have the power 
of the Holy Spirit. So don't be afraid. Do what Jake did. Pray with a friend and speak to people at work about Jesus or on your course. And as you do so, you can speak with courage and confidence. Because the power doesn't lie in you and me. It's the Holy Spirit who's at work. So you don't need to change things so they're more palatable. You just need to speak about Jesus. Trusting the Holy Spirit works through ordinary, fallible, weak people. That's the way he does it. And you see in Acts, it works. It really works. And if you give it a go, eventually you'll find the same. Jesus is growing his kingdom by his spirit. And lastly, Jesus is ruling and he will return. Verse 9. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, and a cloud hit him is not a meteorological term. Oh, how frustrating. Just as we're watching Jesus ascend into heaven, some British weather obscures our view. Wouldn't you? I mean, seriously. Key moment in, in all of God's plan and the weather ruins it. It's, it's not a meteorological term. It's a theological term. As the Israelites are being rescued from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, way back in the book of Exodus by God, God comes down symbolically and leads them out as this shining pillar of cloud. Appears as a pillar of fire at night. And then at the end of the book of Exodus, in Exodus 40, as they build the tabernacle, the mobile temple, as God's presence descends to fill the tabernacle, it's a cloud, a bright shining cloud that fills the tabernacle. And then as Jesus appears on the the Mount of Transfiguration, as the disciples see him as he really is, as if his human skin is peeled back to reveal his divinity. As God the Father speaks, they're enveloped in this bright cloud on top of the mountain. So the cloud is the very presence of God. In other words, what's happening here is not the cloud is stopping them seeing Jesus ascend to the throne in heaven. The cloud is the throne of heaven. They're seeing Jesus return to the presence of God the Father, to the throne that is rightfully his as king of the universe. King Jesus has triumphed over sin and death on the cross and in his resurrection. And now he ascends to the throne that is doubly his. It's his as God the Son and it's his as the resurrected Son. He rules. Now sometimes it doesn't look much like he does rule. If I told you that the universe is being ruled by the most benevolent, loving, powerful being, you might say, have you watched the news, my friend? (laughs) Wicked tyrants like Putin seem to be doing very well, given that you say the universe is run by good King Jesus. I mean, millions of Christians in Pakistan and Nigeria live under awful oppression. I thought you said the universe was run by their King Jesus. And look at the lives of ordinary Christians here. Same sufferings and struggles and cancers that everybody else has. Doesn't look much like King Jesus reigns. But he's a crucified king. He triumphed over evil by dying on the cross in what appeared a humiliating defeat. So don't be surprised 
if his reign often makes little sense to us. Don't be surprised if it often looks like evil is triumphing as it did at the cross. Don't be surprised if Jesus' people often seem weak and defeated as he did at the cross. Jesus never looked so weak as the moment before he rose triumphant from the grave. The risen Lord Jesus still bears scars and the one who is crucified rules the world and there is a crucified pattern to his rule. Verse 10, verse 10. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now, it might seem a little bit harsh to criticize the apostles too much at this point, but the angels do rebuke them. So, look, stop staring in the sky and get on with it. I mean, that's basically what they're saying. Say, look, Jesus will return, but not for a while, and he's given you a job to do. So chop, chop, get on with it. He's told them and us what to do. There's a message. It's the only way of salvation. Go tell people. Hurry up. And here's where these verses bite for you and me. If you're a Christian, hopefully it won't have escaped your notice. Jesus is no longer on earth physically, but you are. And he has a mission for you. And he provides all the power that you and I need to be involved in that mission. And all the direction we need to work out what to do through his word. Now, we're probably not prone to being distracted by staring up into the clouds. We get pretty used to clouds in London. But there are a lot of other things that distract us from building careers, pursuing relationships, planning holidays, a thousand good, healthy things that can so easily become the all-consuming focus of our lives. So we forget that all of us, if we follow Jesus, we do have a great and primary aim, a mission, the mission of God to bring the salvation that only Jesus offers to the dying people of the world. Look, um, whatever your primary school teacher told you, now I know there are some primary school teachers here, I'm going to get in trouble in a second. Whatever they told you, you're not that special. And neither am I. I talked to some primary school teachers. I remember one saying, I've never met an average child, according to the parents. Um, but very special. We like to always think we're a bit special. And we love it when we're told that. The truth is, we are a pretty ordinary bunch of people here at church. And if you're new, you'll learn that. We all have our weaknesses, our doubts, our insecurities, our struggles. But Acts is going to breathe confidence into us, not the confidence of Disney, that you are much more than you ever realized. I'm not going to break into song, don't worry. But Acts is, we will break into song, but a very different song at the end. Not a song about us, but about Jesus, because Acts is going to remind us that as weak and ordinary as we are, Jesus is the king and he's on the throne. And he is going to return to bring us to his paradise. And in the meantime, he's ascended into heaven, but his Holy Spirit has descended to earth to empower you and me, to give us all the love and the courage and the strength and the compassion that we need to bring the message of Jesus to London. 
And obviously, if you're not yet a convinced Christian, then don't be put off by how very ordinary we are. Because it's not about us. I don't want you putting your trust in me or anybody else here. Jesus is the king of the universe. It's Jesus I want you to meet. It's Jesus who will wipe away your guilt and shame. It's Jesus who can free you from your fear of death. And it is knowing Jesus that will fill your heart like nothing else in this universe. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the book of Acts. We thank you for all that we will learn in the coming weeks as we see how the mighty, resurrected, ascended King Jesus works by the power of his Spirit to bring life and hope to the people of this world. Help us to find that hope ourselves and then to share it in the power of the Spirit with others. For your glory, we pray. Amen.